Good morning again. Um, just reminded this morning, technology is a wonderful thing when it works, isn't it? Um, thank the Lord we have His written word that we can um, always rely on. We don't have to be relying on screens and we can study the word together this morning as we, as we page through it. I often miss the, the rustling of pages when we turn to scripture because we become so reliant on the screen, we, we, we miss the, the, the wonder of these pages. Um, but anyway, so we continue our study this morning in the, the letter of John, 1 John chapter 4, and we hope to finish chapter 4 this morning. Uh, John has given us in this letter three tests to determine, remember, if we are abiding in Christ, um, if we are true Christians. Um, he has given us the, the moral test, um, he's given us the doctrinal test, and he's given us the relational test, uh, which we looked at partially last week. So I hope that as we have been going through these tests, you have become assured and confident rather than worried and perplexed. Remember, John's whole aim in writing this letter is not to cause us to doubt, but rather to point us to truth so we may know. Remember, he says that a number of times, that we may know that we have eternal life. So the point of the text is clear here, that John wants to help us enjoy confidence, confidence before God. And he doesn't want us to be paralyzed he doesn't, doesn't want us to be depressed, especially by the fear of, of judgment. Um, so in 1 John chapter 1, remember verse 4, John said, I'm writing these things so your joy may be complete. So that's the whole point. He doesn't want us to be um, doubting. He wants us to be joyful, confident in our salvation. And what the apostle is saying is that nothing would make him happier than to produce a, a generation of Christians who were totally confident in the fact that they are abiding in Christ and that God would accept them on the day of judgment. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's read our passage together. 1 John chapter 4. I'll read from verse 17 verse 21. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray before we go into the word together. Father, we do thank you for your perfect word. We know it is profitable for our instruction and our correction and our training in righteousness. And we pray this morning that, Lord, your Spirit of God would help us to be profited from your word this morning, that he would help us understand your word, that he would help us to apply these truths uh, to our own very lives, 
and to the church corporately, Father, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers as well, that we would be confidently abiding in you and confidently sharing the love of Christ with those around us who are still lost in their sin. That we would be confidently making disciples as we are supposed to be doing, Lord. And that we would be confidently and joyfully fulfilling the very purpose for which we have been made to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. So we pray for your help this morning. Give us wisdom and understanding. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to remind you of the, the context of this letter, remember there were teachers in these different congregations that, that John is writing to that were claiming that they were without sin. That they were claiming that the sins that are committed in the bodies don't count. They don't count because Christianity is a, is a spiritual thing and only our spirit is what matters before God. And therefore you can live however you want to in your body and you can still be perfectly sinless as a Christian because your, your, your spirit is a spirit. And this kind of teaching in the congregation had not only misled um, some of the congregation, and some had become followers of these false teachers, but most of them had also become confused and divided in the congregation because the false teachers were saying to the followers, we have a, a higher knowledge we have a, a deeper knowledge. We have a, a secret knowledge of God. We know better than the rest of these ordinary folk. We know better than the apostles. We know better than the Bible. So this brought a whole lot of confusion and division in the congregation. And that's a context into the words that we read this morning. So we see in verse 17, John tells the church how they are to have confidence, how they are to have boldness. So he's addressing this confusion. He's addressing this, this division. And he's talking about boldness on the day of judgment. And he's addressing the issue of confusion and doubt that these false teachers have spread. And in verse 18, he tells us how to cast out fear from our lives. Um, he talks about the positive and the negative um, angle of, of the same thing. Remember, getting rid of fear is really the negative way of saying become confident. So he's telling us to be conf become confident, but he's also telling us to get rid of, of fear. So my first point this morning is in verse 17 and 18. And my point is simply practicing the love of Christ gives us confidence in the day of judgment. Practicing the love of Christ gives us confidence in the day of judgment. I hope you believe that there will be a day of judgment. You know, it is essential, of course, to have a biblical understanding of this, but also a biblical confidence as we, are, as we will all face this particular day. Now, from beginning to end, the Bible is clear that there is a coming day of judgment. 
Jesus spoke often about the judgment to come. And I hope we all take this day of judgment as seriously as, as John does. And I sometimes wonder, you know, if we have abandoned real belief in God's judgment and the torment that the Bible talks about in, in hell, which our Lord speaks about very vividly so often. You know, today, unfortunately, there's so much teaching about the love of God that we very seldom hear about the, the wrath of God and we very even less frequently hear about God's judgment. But Jesus spoke often about this. He spoke often about this. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 14 and 15, he said, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, talking to his disciples. He says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. For those people who rejected the disciples, for those people who rejected the, the message of the gospel. The Apostle Paul talks about it as well. Remember when he's preaching to the philosophers in, in Athens. He said in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he said that God, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When he talked with the Roman governor Felix in, in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, Paul discussed righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. So this is not a subject that is foreign in the Bible. And it's not a subject that is, is not very often spoken about. The judgment of God is a very real object, a very real subject that we have to deal with. And death, of course, is common to all. Death and taxes, we are told, are the only two things that we can be 100% sure about. But death is common to the human race. And of course, death is a judgment for our sin. But it's not the final judgment. Death is not the final judgment. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews 9.27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. Hebrews goes on to describe this judgment in chapter 10, verse 27. It says, A fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, the, rever the revelation calls this the second death, the lake of fire. So it's not about just falling asleep and never waking up again. It's not just about kicking the bucket or buying the farm. There is a real judgment that we will face after death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And the Lord, ha the Lord has, has warned us very clearly. He has spoken vividly and clearly of the, the horrors of hell. Jesus said himself in Mark chapter 9, verse 47, And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the point is here, we need to be taking this day of judgment seriously. John did. This is an eternal judgment. We all know of people that have skipped the the UAE to avoid the judgment of their debts. Instead of facing the court and the judge and serving their their sentence, they, they have skipped the country to escape this judgment, this temporary judgment. But you cannot do this on the day of judgment. No one can avoid death and no one can avoid this judgment. So you want to make sure that you have a biblical-based confidence as you face that certain day. You want to be 100% sure that when you stand before God, you have confidence that you are a child of God. And John wrote this book to give us this confidence. John wrote this book for the confidence for the day of judgment. He says so in verse 7. And then he goes on to say, to cast out fear. Cast out fear. Now how does that happen? Well, look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's three things in that verse that I want you to notice. In fact, there's three clauses in that verse. And the first clause is, In this is love perfected with us. The second clause is that we may have confidence before the day of judgment. And then the third clause is because as he is, so are we in this world. So I want to look at those clauses one at a time. The first one, in this is love perfected with us. So John's emphasis here is on love being perfected in us. We talked about that a little bit last week. And now one of the basis for our confidence on the day of judgment is when we see God's love flowing through us to others. If there is evidence of God's love in us, we can have this confidence. He first used that phrase perfected, remember in chapter 2 verse 5. And he said there, but whoever keeps his word In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. He used it again there. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. He used it again in verse 13 to 16. He elaborated on, on the first part of that statement. And he repeated the concept of God's abiding us and us in him three times. Now he repeats it again three times. In verse 17, he mentions that word perfected once. And in verse 18, he mentions it twice. This concept of perfect love. What does he mean? In case we, we missed it last week, what does he mean? Well, we saw last week 
that the Greek word for perfected can be translated to mean complete, it can be translated to mean accomplish, it can be translated to mean fulfill. We know God's love is perfect, nothing needs to be added to it. But it needs to be complete in us. It needs to be accomplished in us. It needs to be fulfilled in the church. And that's how God's love is accomplished when we display His glory to others. When we love sacrificially and we display this and we, 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 we show this love, we walk this love. Not just about talking. It is to be revealed as the church demonstrates agape love toward each other. And this perfect love is not just nice thoughts. It's not just nice words. But it is action. It is action. Now, someone once said to me, it's so easy to pray for somebody. But it's another thing to actually perform this love and we're praying for somebody and we're asking God to help them when we ourselves have, have all the necessary resources to help these people. Then we need to help. We're really just being hypocritical, asking God to help that person when we are not willing to help those people. I mean, this is the agape love that needs to be demonstrated. And that's what he's talking about. This perfect love is not just a thought. It's not just words. We need to put this into action. It mustn't remain at the imperfect stage. In other words, the stage where we just talk, 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 talk. It needs to reach the stage of action. And this is how God's love is accomplished. This is how God's love is fulfilled in us through the church. And what John is saying is that when we see God's love flowing through us to others in practical demonstrations of love in practical good deeds we can have confidence this is a basis for our confidence on the day of judgment that's what he's talking about if we are doing these good works we can have confidence that we know God in this regard he is saying essentially the same thing as he said in chapter 3 verse 14 turn there with me if you would he said we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So the presence of God's love in your life, not just in your words, but in your deeds, is evidence that His life is in you and that you are in Him. Evidence. This is also what John meant in chapter 4, verse 12. Look there. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected. It has reached its goal in us. Now, this does not mean that you always love everybody perfectly without any shortcomings. It doesn't mean that. Nobody does that. Rather, it means that the the direction of your life is growth. It's growth in love. And it's a love that is humanly unexplainable. It is God's love. It is a supernatural love. It's not a love that you can manufacture on your own. Remember, we looked at the definition of this agape love, a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself 
in seeking the highest good of others, of the one loved. We cannot manufacture that. It is not a natural love. That is the love that has to come from God. So this implies, of course, that we are involved in the relationships with other people in the church. We saw Hebrews 10, the New Year's message. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints. How can you be involved with people if you're never there with them? How can you love people if you don't have relationships with them? We have to be committed to working through misunderstandings. We have to be committed to working through um, wrong feelings, maybe even hurt feelings with other people. You know, I often talk with people who are, who are having different struggles and they come to me for counseling. And I soon discover that you know, they do not know any other believers well enough to meet regularly with them to help them through with their problems. And that's, that's the whole point, isn't it? The community, the faith, family needs to be a body that is loving sacrificially, developing relationships with each other so that we can minister to each other, so that we can help each other through these problems. We are to provoke each other to love and to good works. And that's not going to happen if we're not building relationships. We need to love one another. We need to get to know one another. And we also need to be committed to working through these differences that we have. And when you see that kind of love increasing in your life, John says, it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence in the day of judgment. Now the opposite is true as well, isn't it? If you keep on isolating yourself from the faith family, if you keep isolating yourself from other believers, you will not be able to enjoy this confidence. You will not be able to enjoy this confidence. But the second clause of this verse says that the result of having love perfected with us is that we have confidence for the day of judgment. The result is there. We not only minister to others, but others minister to us. We get to enjoy this agape love, not, not just as we are, are giving, but also as we are receiving. Look at the second point of verse 17 there. The second part of verse 17 says, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And John adds the third clause. He says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So John goes on to explain why. He goes on to explain why. He says, God's love through us to others gives confidence in the day of judgment because it shows that we are like Jesus. It shows that we are like Jesus. At the day of judgment, God won't condemn people who are like His Son. Living a life of active love shows that we have the Spirit of Jesus within us. It shows that we are little Christ. Little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, isn't it? It means like Christ. It means little Christian. And if we are living a life like Christ, 
we can have confidence that we can stand before God at the day of judgment. Now, loving like Christ shows we belong to his family. And this should give us confidence. You can't live at odds with the character of Jesus and then expect to have confidence when you stand before the Father at the, the final judgment. You can't expect to be thinking God will embrace you when you have been disobeying His word, when you have been acting not like His Son, but acting like yourself. Our confidence doesn't come from our own experiences. Our confidence doesn't come from our own personality. Our confidence doesn't come from even our works. Our confidence comes from Christ, being like Christ, loving like Christ. Look again at the second part of verse 17. John does not say, so should we be. He says, so are we in this world. Again, this is not a suggestion. So are we in the world. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I like Jesus? Can people see Christ in me? Does my life display any resemblance to the love of Jesus in this world? Would others, especially those who who live with me, especially those that I work with, would they be able to say that they see the love of Christ in my daily behavior? Remember, there is no such thing as a secret Christian. Will people be able to say that they see Christ in us? As I said, such love will will not ever be an exact representation of Christ's love. We will never be perfectly like Christ. Even in the most godly of saints, there will always be a, a shortfall. But remember, love is a fruit of the Spirit. And fruit always takes time to mature and to and to grow. Remember, it's not perfection. It is direction. What is the direction of your life? And the direction of your life, is it spirit-filled? Is it fruitful? If it is, you can have confidence before the Father. And John goes on to examine the negative side of this. He says, if we fear the day of judgment, it is evidence that we have not loved others as God intends. So now he takes the positive side and shows us the negative side. Look at verse 18. John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So John is not saying that we should not fear God in the sense of regarding him with respect and and reverence. He's not saying that. There is a proper sense of fearing God as the judge. Nothing wrong with that. But speaking in the context of the final judgment, remember Jesus said in, in Luke chapter two, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter twelve, he says there in verse four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body 
and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So in our context, John means that you cannot draw near to God in love and then run from him out of fear of judgment at the same time. You cannot do that. God wants his children to know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. Not some. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot lose our salvation if you are a true believer. There is no condemnation. So the phrase, perfect love, as we've seen, means love that has reached its goal. Love that is expressed in action. And if you still fear God's judgment, at at the very least, you're not practicing biblical love for others as, as we should be. And that's what John means when he says, the one who fears is not perfected in love. He's not fulfilling this love. It's not being completed in him. And as a result, there is fear. All of us at one point in our life should have experienced the fear of God's judgment. But as we grow in grace, and as we grow in godliness, that fear is replaced by God's love. We have a deeper understanding of the character of our God. And we have a deeper appreciation for Him. And we have a deeper enjoyment of His love. Remember, the whole purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You cannot enjoy God if you are fearing Him all the time. And the reason you are fearing Him is because you don't have confidence in your salvation. And because you are not having the love of God perfected in you. This agape love is not being fulfilled in you. It's not being completed in you. Most unbelievers have neither the fear of God or the love of God in in their lives. It's not there. And often such lack of fear comes from ignorance. They don't understand who God is. They don't understand His judgments. It's similar to children who are often unafraid of, of danger because they are not aware of the severity of the, the danger. I remember once when I was about 10 years old, we went on a, a family trip down to the, to the Cape and we went to this wonderful waterfall in South Africa called the Akrabi's Falls. It was at a national park. And my sister and I were very excited and very keen and very childish. And we went running to see the waterfall. And there were no rails at the edge of the cliff looking down at the waterfall. And both my sister and I went sliding down the edge of this waterfall onto a small little ledge that stopped us from, from heading into this into this um, terrible torrent of water. My father had to send a rope down there to pull us off this, this ledge. 
I mean, I'll never forget that, but we were just ignorant. We didn't understand the, the dangers that were there. And sadly, that's the same for unbelievers. They don't fear God because they don't understand the dangers that are there. They don't understand this torment of hell that awaits those who reject God's Son. The people in their natural state, in their rebellious state, Paul, Paul says in, in Romans 3 verse 8, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, unbelievers may be a heartbeat away from eternity in the lake of fire, but they don't fear God. They live their lives as if they are the king of their own lives and do what they want as if they're the rulers of their own lives. Because they don't fear God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are ignorant. They are foolish. Then, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction of of sin and judgment, we become terrified of God's wrath and of our guilt before Him. We start to understand what we deserve. We start to understand of His justice. We start to understand of His judgment. And we cry out for mercy. We cry out for grace. And it's at this point, at this point in our, in our Christian life that there is fear without love. It's mostly fear. Fear without love. And of course, God can use this to drive us to the cross. He did that in my life. I'm sure you can relate to that. This fear God used to drive us to the cross. And we're trembling. But after that wonderful salvation experience where we receive the forgiveness of God and He takes away our sins and He casts it as far as the east is from the west, we are filled with much love. Much love that we did not deserve. And we start to understand His grace. We start to understand His grace. And as we grow in our faith, we are assured of this wonderful grace. And we see His love working itself out in our lives. And it carts out fear. And we grow into love without fear. No need for this fear anymore. John Newton who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, he talks about that in his song, Amazing Grace. And he says, "'Twas grace that caused my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." I love that. It was God's grace that brought us to fear Him, and it was God's grace It brought us to love Him as well. Our fears were relieved the moment He he washed us from the sin. And so John's point is that as God's love grows in in our life, it casts out this fear of judgment that existed before. It was there before. And instead we have God's love that flows through us. And this is evidence, folks. This is what John is Speaking about this is the point he's he's making this morning. And this is evidence that you are born of God 
And that evidence removes the fear of God's judgment. But John knows that it is easy to get puffed up with pride. He knows that Christians fall into sin, even into hypocrisy. And we make excuses when it comes to the practical matters of loving others. And he addresses this problem in the rest of um, the, the chapter, which we won't have time to finish this morning. But let me finish with one last point in verse 19. The love that God, the love that gives us confidence in the day of judgment comes from God. And the way to boldness, the way to confidence, and the way to fearlessness is to walk in love and to not just talk about love. Is to walk this love, not just to talk this love. Love is perfected not when it is sinlessly flawless, but when it passes from our talk to our walk. When we start to live this. Let me close with an illustration. In, in 1857, David Livingston, who was a pioneer missionary to, to Africa, was home on a furlough and he gave a challenge to the the students at the University of Cambridge. And he tried to convince them that a life of love in the service of others is no ultimate sacrifice. And he had a beautiful illustration and he used 1 John chapter 4 verse 17 and 18, probably without realizing it. These were his words. This is his quote. He said, is that, this is a question, is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? That's a question. So let's answer that. Notice his, his sequence of thoughts here. He says that his labors of love on behalf of the lost have been healthful activity. Activity. Doing. Deeds. And then he says, he has the consciousness of of doing good. This is love perfected. This is what John is talking about. This is love accomplished. This is love completed. Love not just in, in our words, but love in our deeds. It's love that is, is reaching its goal. It's love that is completed in our actions. And what is the result? Look, look what David Livingston says. He says, peace of mind. And then he says, a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. A bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. This is the confidence that John is talking about. Confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence in our, in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls that is without fear. David Livingston could say this because he was serving the Lord sacrificially. I mean, his words have integrity here. This is not said by somebody who, who never ever did anything in his actions. Brothers and sisters, one of the main reasons, I think, why, why so many professing Christians have little confidence with God 
and little boldness with men is that their lives are not devoted to the salvation of the lost and to the glory of God. But instead, often just by default, they devote their lives to providing security for themselves and comfort for themselves and for their families. And they live their lives devoted to themselves. Very selfish, self-centered existence that doesn't bring any glory to God. And that's why they have little confidence. And that's why that fear is there. And when we try to say that we are indwelt by the, the Spirit of Christ, and yet we do not devote our lives to the eternal good of, of other people, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? There's a deep contradiction that, that eats away at our souls. It, it eats away at our souls. And it takes away, it dissolves this, this confidence. And it makes us feeling weak. And it makes us feeling inauthentic. Like a phony. And John wants us to discover really the secret of David Livingston. That a life poured out in the labors of love for the eternal good of other people yields, gives us a sure conscience of doing good and a deep peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. And where will we find the power to do that? Well, let me close with verse 19. Look at verse 19. As for us, we love because He first loved us. Our acts of love on behalf of others never cause God's love to be initiated by us or even towards us. It's always the reverse. God loves us first, even while we were sinners. God loved us first. And then we know and we believe the love that God has for us. And we can trust the love that He has for us in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. He abides in us and His love overflows into action. And it is perfected with us. And we have confidence before the day of judgment. And it all begins with the love of God. That is where it starts. We love because He first loved us. And if you lack the power to love, you need to look to the cross of Christ and let the love of God for sinners fill you with hope. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're reminded this morning of your great love for us. While we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us. There wasn't anything good about us, Lord, that made you choose us to be your children. It was only by your grace. 
And we are thankful for that this morning, Lord. Thankful for your wonderful grace. And Father, we pray as we grow in your love and as we grow in your grace, that your love will be perfected in us and through us. We pray, Father, that we would display your, your glories to the lost world around us, that we would live a life that makes a difference for the, for the glory of God, that our lives would make sense, that we would have a purpose, that we would fulfill the purpose for which we've been saved, that we would be good stewards of the wonderful gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would have confidence in sharing this gospel and sharing the love of Christ to others. Lord, that we would not be intimidated by the world around us. That we would not make excuses not to love, not to share the love of Christ, not to be like Christ. But rather, Lord, we would have confidence to display your love to others. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would live for the glory of God and for the salvation of the lost. And that you would grow your church. And that you would grow your bride. And that you would grow us into the people that you want us to be. And you would receive all the glory. And we ask this prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.